Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open them up right now because we're going to see about God's mind on the attitude of love and what it really means to love others. And so if you'll open up your Bibles to John chapter 13, and then if you don't have a Bible, that's all right. You can grab a Bible from the chair in front of you. You'll see a little rack there. Pull it out. It's on page 84 if you have one of those thinner Bibles. New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You can remember that easy. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John went to bed with their stockings on, so just kind of remember that, if you will. That might help you. John chapter 13, and I do want to talk about what it really means to love others. Now, I have a real challenge with this message, as I mentioned to you last week, which was part one of this, and I'll give you a brief review to show our love to our guests who weren't able to be with us. And that challenge was how that it's hard to define the word love. If you listen to radio uh, songs or CDs, you're going to hear a lot about love. And usually it's wrapped up in the idea of some existential emotion or it's involved in feelings. But the real question is, what is love? And there's no one who could better define and explain and model love to us than the Lord Jesus Christ who would deny the fact that he is love. We know that God is light. We know that God is life. We also know that God is love. And when you study the Trinity, you'll find the Holy Spirit is all three. And then you'll also find Jesus Christ is that as well. And we're in John chapter 13. And he's gathered together his... Uh, uh, group, his team, we might say, 12 apostles, 12 disciples that are getting ready to be launched into ministry. Jesus is just a short time away from going through the horrible time of, of his trial and then his brutalization before he gets on the cross and then his crucifixion. And so he's getting ready to explain what these guys need to know about love. And as he gathers these guys together, he then models it by first showing an attitude of humility and serving this motley group. And he does it by washing their feet. This is God of the whole universe in human form, who himself is not the servant of the house, but modeled in front of them what it meant to wash their feet because in, that, in those days they'd have very dirty feet from kind of walking around. You know, those of us that go to the beach a lot, we have dirty feet. Maybe you sometimes have seen some of the unfortunate homeless people without shoes. Their feet are dirty. Well, you can only imagine these guys' feet were like that. And it wasn't about dirty feet. It was about doing something for another person to show that you love them. And Jesus did that, and we taught that earlier. Now we're in a two-part talking about love. And so we had to find out what does love really mean? Is it merely emotion? Yes, it is. It's a part of that. It's in the package, but that's not what merely drives it. That love is more than just word. It's done in deed and truth, and it's done by our actions. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. What's so neat about John chapter 13 in the section we're talking about love now, there's two verses that kind of tell us as a command that we need to love one another. And then before those verses, there's an illustration of one of the apostles. His name is Judas Iscariot. We'll talk about him in a moment. And then after those two verses is another apostle, and his name is Peter. And both of these guys really are kind of high points in this little story here that's going on because Jesus is using them, I believe, as perhaps a way for him to model what it means to love people that have two different ways to approach life. 
And those two different ways are very similar to maybe the kinds of people that you might have come into your life as well. And so part of that tapestry of what he's doing is to let us know that we need to love others. And Jesus not only mentions it and he mentors them in that, but he also models that. And so for those of you that are here today or listening on radio, I want you to know that that it's not just a message for you to, to hear about love and then to think that must be for someone else because you already are so loving. And I know you are. I see you operate in the lanai and you care for people. But the other problem that I have with teaching on love is that we are so familiar with this concept, especially Christians who often are taught the Word of God, that it's an oh, <laughs> a yawning type of message because we kind of do that kind of love. And that's why I believe it's important to listen today because it's going to help us understand that love isn't just something that, again, we are so familiar with. It is that I believe God will continually parade into our lives people that are very difficult to love. We're going to call them the irregular people, perhaps as one writer has, or maybe sandpaper people. And even those kinds of people probably won't be exactly like these apostles. So let's go back over some of these guys again, all 12 of them. You'll know that they had different personalities, they came from different backgrounds, they had different careers. All of them came from Galilee, except, I believe, Judas Iscariot came from another part of the region. So in a sense, he might have felt a little left out. Some of the guys knew each other, they grew up with one another. Others, they didn't. Judas would be one of those that God, Jesus, chose to be a part of his group. And he chose him knowing already what, Jesus, what Judas would do to him a little bit later on. Now, last week, we learned some things about love, and we need to understand there's a difference with it. And that's where I'd like you to own this, because if we're going to obey the Lord and to love others, what do we really need to know? Here's the difference. We need to know that love is not merely a feeling, something that we feel, but it's also something that we do. It's something that's an action not born on, do I feel like I really love them? I know it's easier when we feel like we love them, but at times we may not feel like we love them, but they need to have love. And he speaks to that in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, love your enemies. And he identifies three ways to do it. Pray for them, do good for them, and bless them. So you love even your enemies. And at the same time, it's something that we can do. I like to tell people that we love people when we feel like it, because it'll happen. We love people when we don't feel like it, and then we love people until we do feel like it because love is the driving force because Jesus said so, he modeled it, and he lives within us who know Christ as Savior. The other difference we need to know is it's not something that I should do. It is something that I can and I will do. A lot of people kind of make themselves feel better when they say, I should really love that person. And, oh, yeah, okay, he's got the message. No, God isn't really concerned about us just knowing that, yeah, we should. He wants to see the action. We should do it, and we will do it because we can do it in him. And then finally, there's a difference between what we call the old loving others and the new loving others. The Old Testament says to love the Lord and to love our neighbors. Jesus says the first and second commandment would be to love the Lord and to love others. But what makes this a new commandment is that now he says, I want you to love others just as I loved you. Let me pause for a moment. We are to love others just as Jesus loved others. Now, there are some people that will logically say, well, I'm not Jesus, I'm not perfect, I'm not God, I can't do that because I'm not Him, so I don't have to do that. Remember the concept about Jesus. Jesus never told us to do something that He did not give us the ability to do it. Catch that? So I say it this way. God's commandments come with God's enablements. And He actually gives us more ability to do what He wants us to do than we really believe we have. 
So yes, we can love others just as Jesus did, is if we dig into the Jesus who's inside of us because we've been born again and we're a partaker of his divine nature. So yes, it's something that we can do. Would you now look at your notes that I put forth in your bulletin? If you will, pull those out for a moment, because I'd like you to look at John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. Would you read that uh, passage together out loud with me? We did it last week, but it's important for us to hear God's word breathed on us as we read it together out loud. Let's read it out loud, beginning. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So I took that phrase, just as, or as I loved you, and I went through the, the grid of the New Testament to find out what other dynamics when Jesus or the Word would say, just as Jesus did. And I really put and found four of them. And those four, again, are just as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have fellowship with one another. We're just going to call that that Trinitarian fellowship and unity that they have. Just as they have that fellowship, then we can have fellowship with one another. And that's huge. There's no division with the Lord and the Trinity. Therefore, there should be no division between believers in the way they demonstrate love to one another. Secondly... We are to forgive others that come against us just as in Christ, Christ has forgiven us. Now think about all those little uh-ohs and boo-boos and mistakes and those wicked thoughts and deeds that you have done. When you go to the Lord, there's never a time that you go to the Lord when you've done this and you humble yourself before Him and you say, Lord, this is my sin. I blew it before you. I am guilty of all of this. That the Lord doesn't say, boy, you really have. I'm finished with you. And He squashes us like a bug. When we come to Him, He quickly forgives us of our sins. He cleanses us and then He sets us out to move ahead again for Him. So just as He's done that for us, when someone has sinned against us, someone has done something to really violate us in some way, and they truly come with a repentant heart, they've changed their mind, they own this, they're broken, and they say, I am sorry, then they love you because they want to make it right with you. You demonstrate love to them by being willing to forgive them. And that's what Christ did. Just as he's forgiven us, we forgive others. Thirdly, we accept one another just as he accepted us. Now, a little bit later on this morning, I'm going to share with you again the difference between accepting and approving, but he has accepted us, quote, warts and all, into the beloved one, just as he accepted us. And with all of our isms and spasms, he accepts us. Whatever your personality is, whatever your abilities are, whatever your experiences are, whatever your history is, whatever your propensity is, he still accepts us. In fact, he accepts us even with all of our sin. I didn't say he approved it. But it did say that he accepts us. And you will see that in the context we're going to talk about today. And again, he says, just as I have accepted you, he says, I want you to accept others. Sometimes I find that if we have a really good friend, I mean a really good friend, after you're a good friend with them, it's not long before we see that sometimes they are really weird. I mean, they really do some really weird stuff. And really at that time, if you're really a good friend, you kind of know that they're weird. I have a good friend on the mainland. I've roomed with this guy, and this guy does some really stupid, weird stuff. Not sin. He's just kind of weird. But I love him. He's my buddy. I care for him. That's the aspect of accepting them. And just like God accepts us with all of the way we are, we're to accept those that are around us. And I hope that it would be not just a friend, but those to get into your circle of friendship. And then finally, this is the hard one, we sacrifice 
for someone else, just like Jesus sacrificed for us. Now, that is very hard for me to wrap my head around. That would mean, would I take a bullet for someone else? I can say absolutely no question. Look me in the eyes. I will definitely take a bullet for Carol. Because I love her. She's easy to love, isn't she? I'm going to get a little message on the way home now. But anyway, I love her. Now, the real question is, would I be willing to sacrifice for people that I don't really care? I, I, they, they, they're so different than I am. Am I willing, watch this, to even sacrifice to do something that costs me something? And by the way, I don't think we have to look catching a bullet for someone else. Something that's more expensive than even our money is going to be the time that we sacrifice Something that we wanted to do, something we needed to do, something we, we desired to do for ourselves. We deserve this, but we set it aside because someone has a greater need because we want to sacrifice for whoever that person might be. Now, Jesus did all of that for us on the cross, and he did it, watch this, while we were yet enemies, while we were yet sinners, he did that for you and me. Now, that's the whole concept of love in this passage as we see it. Now, we want to watch to see how it opens up. I want to talk about Judas for just a little bit. I wish I had the time to do a character sketch just on Judas because he is such a colorful guy even though we don't know a lot about him. But there are some very unusual dynamics if you take snapshots of his life that really kind of stand out of the kind of person that he was. But I will tell you this, he was a betrayer. He was what we call a traitor. So he is someone that we would say rejected Christ. Let me ask you a question, and maybe this will be a nice thing to do on the way home to talk with, with your family, to kind of play a little game. Ask them, how many notorious traitors can the different ones in your family name? How many notorious traitors that you and your family can name? And I went through a list, and I found a whole bunch of them. I don't have time to go to all of them, but there are some notorious traitors that have really sold our country out. One traitor took every bit of operation, both air and with our troops, and for three years during the Vietnam War, fed that information to the enemy. And that's why we had so much trouble. He was finally found out. Another one infiltrated the information of what Russia had and what we had, and then told Russia all the KGB operatives that were double agents, representing America, but were KGB people, and then told them who they were, including the KGB players that were going to defect to America. Another one gave so many facts and statistics away about who our CIA agents were, and that those agents, they said over a hundred of them were brutalized and tortured, and ten of them died. I'm not giving you the names of these guys. You can see me afterwards if you'd like to know who they are. But I imagine that the top of your list, if you're going to name the most notorious American traitor, it's going to be who? Benedict Arnold. Now, he lived during the Revolutionary War period of time. He was a great general. He was responsible for West Point when West Point was a fort. But he defected to the British Empire, so to speak, and he then turned over the plans of how they could take over West Point. But those plans were taken, and it was then noised abroad what he did. So he had to flee West Point. He got on a British ship in, Hudson, in the Hudson River, and he was ready then to go to England. They convinced him to then take over British troops and came upon places like uh, Groton, Connecticut, other places in New York. And so forever, Benedict Arnold's name will go down as the most American notorious traitor that we've ever had. Now, if you look at that, that's in our history. 
If you move it a little bit into the Bible, you're going to find there are some notorious traitors in the Bible. You're going to find people that turned against David. His own son then stole the hearts of the people of the kingdom of David and turned them against David, where David had to flee Jerusalem. You had others that were in his purview that came against David. David felt the pathos of traitors in his life. In fact, so much so, I'd like you to turn, hold your place here, and turn, if you will, to Psalm 49. Turn to Psalm 49. You have to hear the feeling of what David is expressing here. Here's what he says in Psalm 49. In verse 9 he says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. In Psalm 55, verse 12 through 14, if you want, you can read there. It says, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, who had sweet fellowship together. We walked in the house of God in the throng. So in other words, these are people who were up close and personal. And it's interesting because David is expressing this about those who turned against him. And Jesus says, as it was spoken in the Old Testament, he's now referring to Judas, which now tells me the Old Testament is like a prophecy in Psalm there about Jesus. So it's what we call a messianic psalm, referring to Christ, because Christ is referring back to it. And yet David was talking about his time. So it's linking the Old Testament with the New Testament together, because it's all a part of the bigger message, how that Jesus, the righteous one, was betrayed by Judas. Now, we talked about American history. We talked some about the Bible here, but let me ask you. Can you go down memory lane and someone betrayed you? Probably the most painful betrayal that two people that can ever have is those who, with great love, perhaps by emotion, they're joined together at the altar and saying, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do we part. They join marriage, go off into a wonderful honeymoon. They stay married for X amount of years. And then they find that although they thought the relationship was good, one of those partners was out betraying the other partner and the one finally found out about it. You might be right now stinging and nauseous because it happened to you. You might have had a loved one, a child, a brother, or sister, or you lived through it when it happened to your own mom and dad. You live through that pain of betrayal. And I wanted you to feel that for just a moment because while you're experiencing this, the sense of I'm trusting, I'm loving, I'm caring, and you're betrayed, what did Jesus do? He didn't merely flick him off. He knew ahead of time that even Judas was going to do this and he manifested the love. So again, he tells us to love others. At the same time, he does it to show us how to do that even to the point of the cross and he does this to show us that we can love others. Now again... Accepting and loving is a whole lot different than approving and condoning. There is a difference there. Well, let's go back to this passage, if you will. I would like you to pick it up for just a moment in John chapter 13. And I'm going to start here, if you will, at verse 18. And I'm going to take a few moments to give you a little running commentary because I want you to see how this all began to develop because we're pretty much at the end of Jesus' life right here. And things are happening with Judas pretty rapidly because he's the one who betrays Jesus in this context as well as in the other Gospels, it said. Verse 18, he says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. Go back to the phrase that says, I don't speak of all of you. Go up to verse 10, it says, Then Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. 
So when he speaks in verse 18, he's basically preparing them to let them know that there is one who's a traitor in the midst. And I want you to remember this, especially in the coming hours that we're going to face together as brothers. And he says, and I know the ones I've chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. Someone had to betray him. We knew that in the Old Testament. And the scripture that's fulfilled is the one we read to you in Psalms. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Well, let me ask you this, if you might feel this a little bit. How many of you have a, a, a pet or a dog or a cat that you love so much, and while you're enjoying that little pet, for whatever reason, you get this Cujo dog that goes nuts on you and starts biting you, or a cat that you're petting and all of a sudden, it scratches you in the face. If you had something like that, that would be like a heel rising up against you. In this case, it wasn't that Judas slapped or bit Jesus. It was that he rose up against him by selling Jesus out. To the Jewish leaders. Let's go back to the passage. So he's explaining what's going to happen in the near future. And then verse 19 he says, From now on I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does, guys, you may believe that I am. The word he there is not found in the original. So he's saying, I want you to know again, I'm not just Jesus. I am the great I am. I am God in the flesh. So there's a lot of deity in that statement. Verse 20. Truly, truly, and that's a phrase he uses over and over again in the Gospel of John. Truly, truly, or I ain't going to tell you a lie right now. I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now, when I read that portion there, I thought, as I read the narrative, I thought, that doesn't make a lot of sense. It seems like it kind of jumped out of the flow, and somehow John threw this in here, and then he moved on in verse 21. But the more I meditated on this passage, the more I was understanding the bigger picture. So if you will, just give me a moment to explain what he's saying here. He's saying, I've chosen all of you, I've even chosen the one who's going to reject me. This is the one that's going to come against me. But I'm telling you ahead of time because it's going to happen and something big is coming down the road. Now, I'm sure that some of these guys are listening to all that and they're saying, huh, what in the world are you saying? Jesus is also reminding him, them this, that I'm sending you out. Meaning that even when Judas, in the future, will come against him with all these guys and Jesus finally dies, it doesn't mean, here it is, the end of a movement. That Jesus says, even though I'm gone and I won't be with you, I'm still sending you out. And whoever receives you will be receiving me. Now let me see if I can make sense out of that, as if I'm one of those apostles. I'm not. We're just relaxed. The apostle, that word, apostle means sent one, which fits into the context, sending out. So a sent one. In a sense, God sent me here to Hawaii for a time such as this. The apostles were given a message from the Lord, and they spoke that message. We have a lot of the New Testament that was written because of those apostles and Paul coming back over here. I am sent one, but I don't have an, an unusual additional message from God. I have a message from God, and it's all wrapped up in Scripture. Saying all that now to say this. The logical train is, if you receive me in what I'm saying then you'll be receiving Jesus because what I'm saying would be the words of Jesus. And now, when you receive the words of Jesus, then you are receiving the words of God. So the word of God is through Christ, through me. So when you come, you may be listening to a handmade sermon, but it's only going to be biblical as I stick to the context and the proper correct interpretation of it, and that's how you're receiving it. So that's why the Lord dropped that little phrase in there, getting them ready to know that Judas is going to come, there's going to be a tremendous problem coming in the future, but you are still sent, so stay on mark, stay on message. Now let me just say this. <clears throat> Boy, I hope I'm not giving this to Satan. I think I'm not. Here we go. If something happened to me, 
I'm trying to walk before the Lord in purity. I can look before you right now that there's no moral infraction going on in my life. But if something happened to me where I drop dead, I hope I don't. Or if I get incapacitated where I cannot stand before you, the same thing would be true. Those words that you heard from the Word of God, those things that you listened to on the message, even in my absence, the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and the discipleship of those believers to become fully devoted followers of Christ, that message must carry on way beyond standing Carol Ponds, whatever might happen to us. Now, don't read more into that other than to let you know it's not based upon one human leader. The message goes on. Even when Jesus died and he rose again, that message needed to go on. Back to the passage. Again, the passage is getting ready to remind us about loving each other. So he says this, whoever receives me receives those, him who sent me, which would be the Lord. Now verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit. Now next week I'm going to begin a brand new series in chapter 14. That series is going to be wrapped around the whole concept of a troubled heart. I'll open up that aspect of troubling here because Jesus says in chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. And so I want to give a, a series on comfort for the troubled heart. Now why do I want to do that? Because Jesus in chapter 14 is now piggybacking chapter 13 here because he's talking about loving. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Thank you.